Pushkin. Welcome to Broken Record, Season 2. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. Rick Rubin, Bruce Hedlum, and I are back. Eight more weeks of conversation with some of the most talented musicians in the world. We're going to talk to them. They're going to play for us. And we're starting with an insane two-part interview with Amir Questlove Thompson, drummer for The Roots, a hip-hop band from Philly that has become The Tonight Show's house band. Quest is also a producer, a DJ, and an all-around musical polymath. I sat down with him in Manhattan after a taping of The Tonight Show. Rick joined us via Skype from a studio in Hawaii. We didn't think we'd talk to Quest for nearly three hours, but he kept pulling us in, story after story. Afterwards, I texted Rick, all caps, that went well. First off, Amir, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for uh, having me. Thank you. Rick and I have been looking forward to this all week. You, First of all, you guys, you know each other from how far back? From life. When did I first meet you, Rick? I think I have a vague 2000. recollection, but I want to see if you have the same one as me. I think around voodoo time, 2000-ish, I believe I met Rick somewhere in L.A. I think it's 2000. Okay, I'll tell you, my, my recollection was we met in the lobby of a hotel that had very high ceilings. And okay. It was really dark. And it was at some sort of a big show festival on the East Coast, maybe Tibetan Freedom Festival, but yes. in the hotel in the lobby. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Could that be? Yes. I, I think that's correct. Yes. You're right. Uh, DC. Would that have been was around it? like second album of yours? Um, it was early. I know it was early. Third album? It, it was about fourth album time. I remember we tried... The first time we tried to do Tibetan Freedom, um, it rained out. So instead, I was one of the lucky few people that got to see Radiohead at the 930 Club. Oh, um, really? Instead, you went to see me? Well, no, no, no. I yeah. mean, they were, you know, like, it was like a lightning storm that yeah. Um, yeah. threatened the D.C. portion of the Tibetan Freedom concert. So instead, you know, everybody's going home and Radiohead's like, wait a minute, we're going to be at the 930 Club. So me, me. I, That's a pretty good consolation prize. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it was great. I wouldn't have had it any other way. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to plunge into things musical. Okay. You're, so in your household growing up, so your dad has an extraordinary record collection, yes. as I understand it. Mm -hmm. So what are, you, what are you listening to as a, as a kid? All right. So I grew up with three very distinct uh, record collectors. My dad was into what I would sort of jokingly say is the yacht rock of his day. He was into Mathis, Streisand, vocal groups. Like, he had pet sounds. So, you know, seeing pet sounds in my house as a kid, I was just like, hmm, Beach Boys, whatever. But once I got older and realized, oh, their harmony game is bar none, then I, it, anybody like flaunting harmony to the next level, like my dad was on it, or vocals to the next level. Because... He was sort of like a Nat King Cole type. Uh, my mom was more funky and hip. So any album cover that had like a Mar Marty Clairwig, who did like, you know, Miles Davis, Bitches Brew or Santana's album covers, like those, those oil, really funky, like abstract oil painting covers. 
like she would buy records like a like a crate digger or a record collector in, the, in my day does. Like you look at the cover, oh, this is funky. It's got to be something. Like that's how she collected. Like records. that famous Ohio Players. Yeah, anything funky. Record, record, yeah. Oh, it's so funny you say that because I get a copy of Honey when I'm six years old. <laughs> on, the, on the corner, it's like, uh, this is January 20th, 1976. Uh, happy fifth birthday, Amir. We love you very much, mommy and daddy. And I'm like, I still have that album coming. I'm like, yo, like, do you guys realize what you gave me? Like, <laughs> naked. For those like, who are not unaware, it's a, it is a very, very beautiful, very, very naked woman. Right. But they were just oh, like, we saw it as high art. And that's yeah. the thing. Even I didn't see it as salacious. Like, oh my God, who's this one? Yeah. Like, I'm, you know, I just saw a theme of, okay, every Ohio player's album cover looks like Black Playboy. My sister, <laughs> Uh-huh. My sister at that time blending in with her her uh, middle school friends and eventually her high school friends, you kind of sort of have a, to adapt to their taste. She's bringing home Bohemian Rhapsody. She's bringing home Bowie. She's bringing home Fall Cat. Like my dad and my sister have very similar tastes. My my sister is like one of the biggest yacht rock fans I know. Rupert Holmes. Yeah, Ambrosia, like all that soft, the Captain and Sunil, all that stuff. And the main rule in the household was don't touch my stereo. So I'm not allowed to choose what I want to hear. So I have to be forced to listen to what they want to hear. You were held hostage by Yacht Rock as a child. I mean, you know, I think from the age of three till about nine, you just take in everything that they give you. So, I mean, I pretty much had an adult's knowledge of music by the time I was 10 years old. Like, I was reading Rolling Stone. I often talk about seeing the, the Prince Dirty Mind lead review, the Yoko cover story uh, of Rolling Stone, um, her first interview after uh, John was assassinated. And I knew it was a big deal, even at the age of nine, that Prince got a four and a half star lead review in Rolling Stone. Because in my head, I was like, wait, this white people don't know this guy. Like, how did he get the lead review and the artwork and all this stuff? And reading the how glowing it was, I was just like, this is a big deal. So I, I really had an adult's vocabulary with music by the time I, I was 10. Do you have any memories of... Um, Record shopping? Yeah, just, no, of like specific events, like the time that you, the first time you saw so-and-so. I could, I have a yes. bunch of them, but I want to ask you first of... Um, yeah. Uh, oh man, the day that Songs in the Key of Life came out, that that could have been a national holiday. I mean, the world stopped. It was like War of the Worlds. We brought the record and like the entire family, even like, I'm coming over to listen to it. Like my my mom's sister came to the house and we're just sitting there listening to this record. Now, again, I'm six years old. So, you know, I'm not understanding anything about Stevie Wonder's genius period and the fact that, you know, from 71, to, you know, the, the streak was happening. And I didn't know who Malcolm or Cecil, like his producers, and none of those guys were. But I just remember, like, how they treated that album as an event. And there was a booklet inside it, and these fonts are really weird, and is he drowning in donuts, and just... Everything about that album was, was was like an event. So, I mean, did, did any one of the did you appreciate it as an album, or do certain songs even today kind of stand out? 
really because of Stevie Wonder, I'm not an album guy. And I feel so ashamed to say that in front of you, Rick, because I know that you create great singles. I'm just now realizing as a DJ now, and I mean like in the last three to four years, like, oh man, the single does matter. I'm suddenly seeing the what I should have known 30 years ago when I first started. But I just seen albums as as peaks and valleys and statements and and you know, for me it was I always felt as that as though any album I create should be like, okay, well he starts off with a slow song here and he slowly rises here and then the the jazz fusion songs number four and then the high end songs are here and then he dips a little bit here and side three is a little slow and then the breathless race to the finish at the end. So I always took it as complete statements, which is why I'm one of the few people that I was elated with Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants, which everybody, including my dad, once that came out, he's like, I'm not buying it. He he stopped record binging after Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants because really? killed it for him. Yeah, but for me, that that was my dark side of the moon. That was my put headphones on, close your eyes and imagine like what's happening and you hear all this panned noise and everything and I, I didn't know about pop hits or, you know, why is it all instrumental or that sort of thing. Like, Rick, what, what, Rick, what's your version of of that kind of event album from your childhood? Is there one? Do you have a version of the of Songs in the Cave Live? Well, I can remember that particular album. I can remember getting that album and um, Chuck Mangione at the same time. So they, they must have come out in the same year, I imagine. Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. And I remember I had a little keyboard, although I couldn't really play anything. And I, trying to play along all the different parts on the record, just on the keyboard, just try to have some <laughs> understanding of what was going on. I can remember the first time I was in a record store and I saw, now this is sort of, it's late for this because the record came out much earlier. But I remember finding the MC5 and first seeing that first album cover and then listening to it and thinking, well, this is during punk rock times. Like, wow, this is, it's kind of like punk rock, but it's old, but it has that energy. It has a, like a frantic energy. And that really excited me. And then I can remember, okay, is there anyone else like the MC5? It's like, well, it's not exactly like them, but then it leads you to Iggy and the Stooges. And I can just remember these moments of, um, revelation of hearing a new i can remember the first time i heard the ramones and just didn't have any point of reference for it i have a slight confession to make yeah i hate to say this i finally listened to the entire ramones album from start to finish eight days ago and i'm so mad that it took me so long to do it what led you to do it okay this is the lamest thing ever so i'm kind of at a creative fork in the road right now as far as djing is concerned because a lot of the eclectic music I play appeals to a specific audience. And I'm trying to figure out more creative ways to bring them out. Because, of course, like, you know, the people that like the music that I like are older. They have kids. They're not coming out at 2, 3 in the morning. I'll say in the last year or so, I've been doing Saturday afternoon DJing, Sunday afternoon DJing, so that it's family-friendly. Parents can come and relive their club days and the kids can have what it's my it's my version of reinventing hip-hop because hip-hop supposed to be a community-based afternoon sort of thing that sort of thing and i did uh an ice skating rink i knew it was going to be a lot of kids there and i was like all right well 
let me make sure that I'm playing kid friendly stuff and whatnot. And I just happened to just look on the internet. I was like, all right, adult music that kids seem to like as well. And of course, uh, Briskling, I can't pronounce it. Blitzkrieg Blitzkrieg Bop. Uh, was listed. And I was like, yeah, because they always sing that at sports uh, at sports events. And I didn't have it, so I downloaded it. And I saw that, oh, all the songs are under two minutes and 30 seconds, two minutes and 30 seconds. And as a songwriter, as I spoke to you before, like not focusing on singles, um, I'm now obsessed with people that have had successful singles under three minutes. Because it's one thing to do these well thought out, you know, introspective 11 minute free jazz stuff. And no, oh, the roots are such artists, but it's like, can we do Judy's a punk? Can we make an effective song with bare minimum in three minutes? Can we be just as effective? So now I'm trying to study minimalist effectiveness. And so, yeah. It's like, as a writer, it's why I'm obsessed with commercials. Always been obsessed with commercials. Because they tell a story in 30 seconds. Are you, you know, and if you are a writer and you know how hard it is to tell a story, mm-hmm. you're, you put the person who writes the brilliant commercial at the top of the list. The only reason why I'm obsessed with this is because now that I work at The Tonight Show, we have to write eight-second jingles, of which you have to have narrative of what the title is. Writing eight-second songs is sort of our version of commercials. So, How often, this is a question for both of you, as producers... How often do you say to the artist you're working with, make it shorter? <laughs> I, I never do unless it, unless it's boring. It's like it's really every piece has the length that it wants to be. I have a question for you. Yeah. Okay. So fight for your right to party. Yeah. I'll say the last four years, I heard the original demo version with extra verses in it and yada, yada, yada. So... I'm asking this mainly because I just read the Beastie Boy book. So in your head, how did you have that much discipline to know what to reduce? Like you're famous for reducing stuff. Yeah. Taking taking elements away so that it doesn't distract. In in that case, I don't remember it ever being longer than that. Well, there's like an extra verse in there that was taken away. So I wonder, I'd, I'd love to hear it because I have no recollection of it ever being longer. In those days, it, it would be unusual for us to shorten anything. Really? Yeah. So even then, you weren't thinking like, okay, three minutes and 30 seconds. Never in, in my life have I thought that. <laughs> so you don't have Clive Davis ears and... N- not in the least. I'm, I'm, yeah, but you're so bullseye with it. Like it's you, my taste. You literally- it's, it has to do with growing up where I grew up and listening to the Beatles. So the, the first formative music for me was the Beatles. And those were short pop songs. So I had that formula of goodness in me from the time I was a little kid. That was just all I knew that was good. And when I would hear something that felt like, anytime it felt like it got boring to me, right? it was too long. But some, you know, I like 10-minute jams too. Well, I mean, my, one of my because... favorite groups is Trouble Funk. And if you listen to their music, it just right. goes forever. right. He's being seriously modest right now, but like he literally, I mean, the most revolutionary thing that he brought to the world of hip hop was he literally invented the three minute song. Like before him, 
even a song as 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 sticky and friendly as the message by Grandmaster Flash, that was still eight minutes. Planet Rock, because you're thinking of the club and keeping the groove lasting a long time, that sort of thing. LL, like when I we got LL's record, I yo, these songs are four minutes long. Like we never even fathom that you could have an effective hip hop record or song to be three minutes and fifty seconds. Like just seeing those times on the 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 Def Jam thing, I was just like, this is weird. What's going on here? But to you, that was just did anyone just else ba- like resist that at on, all? It was just based on growing up with the Beatles. That was it. It wasn't, it was not at all uh premeditated in any way. It was natural to me. And when I would get, you know, I I collected 12 inch, 12 inch vinyl at that time, because every hip hop record came out 12 inch pretty much. That was the main format of the day. Right. So I would get these, you know, Jimmy Spicer records that were nine yeah. minutes long and it would be or 12 minutes long and Mm-hmm. And it always seemed like they weren't made to listen to. They were made to dance to. They right. weren't they weren't long in service to the song. Right. And I've always wanted to work in service to the song, whatever that is. And and sometimes it's the whole side of an album. Sometimes it's three minutes. But it usually just takes someone so long to learn that lesson. And that's I think just it just has to, to do with like- where where you started listening to Pharaoh Sanders and longer, more experimental pieces. I started right. listening to the Beatles, but again, before I knew what I was listening to, just what I gravitated towards the Beatles and the monkeys when I was a little teeny kid. No, I'll admit that or selfishly or whatever. Like I was definitely creating stuff that teenage me would want to, I didn't know what a pop hook was or none of that stuff until you know, even when we got our first real hit, four albums, and there was fear that I might ruin it because I wanted to show our drum and bass London influence. And it became a thing of like, yo, is this too radical for the song? Like, will this ruin it? But even then, my answer was like, we're not a pop group, so it doesn't matter, right? Like, we're never, ever going to get on the radio in this lifetime. So let's just do it. And then it backfired and worked. But even then, I didn't know why the song worked and the elements that made it work. It wasn't until I started DJing. Like, if you look throughout history, every great producer has done a lot of hours DJing somewhere. Rick has done it. Jimmy Jam. Dr. Dre, in his situation, the reason why he's so good is because if you played the wrong song, the club might get shot up. So imagine DJing under those tense conditions. So it's but almost it's, like you have to have a winner out the gate. It's the hip-hop so. version of that famous statement, the prospect of a hanging in the morning concentrates the mind wonderfully. In this case, <laughs> it's the prospect of a shooting in the club yes. concentrates the DJing wonderfully. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, can you... This is leads me to another thing that I've always been obsessed with, and that is that when you get immersed, as the two of you are in music, what happens when you listen to music that's not your own? Can you turn the critic off and appreciate it with your, without passing judgment? Or are you actually producing the song in your head as you listen? Mm. Who, who first? I can do that with records. I can't do that with concerts. In concerts, I become the sound man. Oh, God, they got to turn the hi-hat up. Sometimes at actual shows, I'll run back to the guy. <laughs> you really? No, the, the sound guy be like, oh, my God, I'm such a fan. I'm such, that's good. Wait, 
you should turn up the hi hat more. Just say a little bit, and then run. Like I micromanage many a concert. Um, <laughs> records, I do that with Prince a lot. I'll say that with Prince, I'll do that a you, lot. You'll do what with Prince? Critique it as you listen. I'm harder on him than I am on why anyone else. Well, because it's like Prince is my DNA, and I've always felt as though it's usually when you upgrade your situation. Like if you, if the, the, the artist that I like, uh, let's take RZA from Wu-Tang. People will speak with great reverence of the first five Wu-Tang projects from Enter the 36 Chambers up until, let's say, uh, Iron Man, the Ghostface album. And that's because they had limited resources inside of his apartment in Staten Island. But it's like once they upgraded to that plus studio in L.A. for Wu-Tang Forever, that's when they started meeting the difference from the fan base. With Prince, the same thing. When he was in his bedroom with like very limited equipment, that's where like the most creative shit ever happened. And, you know, I mean, I'll allow a pass for the record plant as well. He was in that zone there. But once he got to Paisley Park, then I started noticing like, oh, man. I bet you he used like Shure 57 microphones on the drums and used an SSL board. And then I just started like dissecting the sheen and the cleanness of it all. And, you know, it's hard for me to to separate that. I occasionally do that with Stevie Wonder as well. I, I do it with everything. Pretty much anything I hear, I'm always thinking, oh, I wish it was more like this. Or like, like I just imagine it sounding different. And it's hard to turn off the producer brain. I, it's one of the reasons I really like listening to classical music and jazz because I don't have that same feeling listening to that music. But listening to hip hop or listening to rock music, or um, more often than not, I'm producing in my head. There's one example which would be fun to talk about because you're involved is the D'Angelo Voodoo album. To me, is absolutely perfect. It's the first time I can remember listening through to an album wishing I had something to do with it because it was so good. It was just like, oh, oh my God, this is everything I want an album to be. And it was unlike anything I'd ever heard before. Such a scary time period, man, because Virgin <laughs> wasn't, wasn't seeing it that way. Oh, man. there You know, there was a lot of, uh, okay, when will you guys actually start the real record now and stop messing around? And we're looking at each other like, mm, this is the record. You wait, know? Wait, t- tell us how you got involved with D'Angelo and that album. I met D'Angelo and Erica Badu, coincidentally, on um, April Fool's 1996. I'm on tour with the Fugees and the Goody Mob. It is the Soul Train Awards weekend, one year before the Biggie tragedy. The Fugees were just beginning their crescent to the stars with the score album. So there was a lot of playful sort of tension between the two groups. You know, by this point, the roots become like such a well-oiled machine live and like, okay, we got to kick their ass tonight. We're in LA. We got to do it. And I remember getting on my drum set and seeing, I didn't know who Erica was. So I just assumed at the time that was his girlfriend. You know, she had the tall head wrap on. But I knew D'Angelo's silhouette because he was like front. I could see his silhouette front and center behind the lights. And I remembered that I dismissively talked myself out of playing on Brown Sugar, his previous album. 
because at the time I was just like, eh, soul singers in the nineties, whatever. Like, I'm not doing this thing. You know, R and B guys, like nothing about soul uh, singing had moved me from any nineties offering the same way that it did when Otis Redding, Stevie Wonder, Lou Rawls, like soul music. They were like, yeah, he wants you to drum on his record. And I looked at him like, eh, I'll pass. And then I got brown sugar and was like, oh my God, this guy could be the one. And so I've been trying to figure out how to get back in his good graces so I can be there for round two. Now, the thing is, is that because of this rivalry thing we have with the Fugees, the show was a certain way. But when I saw D'Angelo, I decided to call an audible and basically have, have a conversation with just him, which meant that I was now about to throw my entire band off. Because what I would normally do for a particular intro of a song, I'm now saying, all right, I'm going to do this very obscure Prince drum roll and see if he gets it. So I'm doing the Prince drum roll instead. And my band's looking at me like, what are you doing? You're just trying to impress D'Angelo. Right. But they didn't get that. And, you know, and I'm, I'm just calling the song like, go on with it, go on with it. So they're, they're looking at me like you're thwarting and throwing off the entire show. But the only person that mattered to me in the room that night was, and when he heard that intro, he stood at attention. It was like, yo! And I, when I seen that, I was like, yeah, I got you, motherfucker. <laughs> and, you- then, and then, like, that whole show was the first time that the drumming I'm known for now started to come to light. And again, throwing my band off. Like, why are you playing like a, like a drunk three-year-old? Like, why are you playing off rhythm? Why are you... And the thing was, I had to put the bait on the hook and throw it out there. And once he grabbed it, I was like, nope, not letting go. Like, this is how I'm going to drum from now on. So he got it. They were mad as hell at me that night. But he got it. And, you know, I felt good because then all the Fuji's records skipped. So they had a bad performance <laughs> that night. So <laughs> we won. But, um, yeah, after that, then he knew... That was the African communication thing. Like, I had to use my drum to tell him, okay, we speak the same language. And he came to Philly to do a song on our album. It was the last day of recording. And we had, like, seven hours left, so we just continued to play. And then it was like, well, come by next week. Come by next week. And then the fourth time, I'm at Electric Lady Studios for what will be a a five-year tutorial and education and probably one of the greatest creative periods of, of my, that was, that was my becoming an adult just every day. Like I was YouTube cause I was still doing these mammoth grateful dead, like tours with the roots, spending all my off days at electric lady with him, but mostly traveling the world, collecting any and every videotape performance of some vintage Al Green and 1974 and, Graham Central Station in 1976 and bringing it back to Electric Lady so we could study it. And then after we watch it like two or three times, then we come and then play what we just watched. And after four hours of messing around, suddenly he'll change the key and I'll say, hey, what you doing? No, 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 keep on playing the rhythm. And then suddenly the morphing of a new song starts. And that's pretty much why Voodoo took five years to make those 12 songs because that was the, the slow, arduous process of 
digging and digging and morphing and digging and morphing and then coming up with. You know. We had a similar experience with um, the first Beastie Boys album, which took, I think, three years to make. And it was the same reason. It was like, um, it, really? it wasn't, yeah, it was just like looking for these inspirational jumping off points and then messing with those in the studio to make it an interesting track. And, um, and then we would write to it, but, but that would happen. It happened over a long period of time. I can remember, um, I might've told you this story before Malcolm, but I can remember being at a different session and Mike D calling me really upset. It's like, how come our album's not done yet? It's like, you can't rush it. It's like, you can't, it's not, it's not, um, right. It, it comes when it comes, you know, it's not a, it's not automatic. So it's, it reminds me of that, that experience of that sort of. What's, what's the jam session process like for that time period? Who's the person that's like, hey, let's program something, you know, this particular way and backwards mask it and, or, or even like the starts and stops in, in like uh, the new style or yeah. just, okay. that, so, that's another life-changing album for me, by the way. Licensed to Ill. Life-changing, world-stopping, life-changing. But go ahead. So, but it was done with the same sort of precision you're talking about. And, and then it would have been, more often than not, it would have just been me and an engineer in the, in the room working on the music for a long time until I had something that was exciting enough to even feel comfortable playing for the band, you know? Like it had to, the music really had to be right first. And so many of the drops and things, it, it was all rooted in the vocals. So we would, first there would be the the basic track which would be either samples or it was really loops then because there was no sampler yet so mm -hmm. it was either loops or direct djing in parts program drums i would play rudimentary like guitar stuff if it if it needed to be there mm -hmm. and we would get the tracks to that point then we would usually write the words which would happen over a while and, the, and we were always collecting lyrics, like um, me and Adam Horowitz would go out to Dance Tyria pretty much every night and just goof around and try to make each other laugh. And if the other person laughed, it was usually a, a usable line. And just <laughs> always like little tiny pieces of paper with scribbled notes on them. And Almost like would, a comedian. That's yeah, crazy. It very much was like that. It, and, and it was... I would say that we were as inspired by Monty Python and Steve Martin as we were by anybody doing music. It was, it really was about inside jokes and making each other laugh. Wow. Uh, and then the things, the drops you talk about would happen after the vocals were done, we would, all of us, line up at the console and everybody was before automation, or at least before automation for us, and we would each man a section of the console. And then we would play it and do different drops and experiment and like and you'd learn the song almost like learning musical parts wow so that you could do the same drop every time and we would try to get through the whole song with five people standing at the desk doing muting or rides and mm -hmm. just like live automation that was pretty much how we made all all those that also run dmc as well at that time We'll be back with more from Questlove after this break. Hey there, I'm Ashley Ford, host of the Chronicles of Now podcast. 
Chronicles of Now commissions amazing authors like Roxane Gay, Colin McCann, Carmen Maria Machado, and Curtis Sittenfield to write short fiction inspired by the headlines. Each episode features a new work of fiction inspired by the biggest stories of our time, like what does COVID-19 do to our relationships? How do we make sense of climate change and extinction? And perhaps most mysteriously, what is going on with Trump's tweets? Because in such uncertain times, sometimes art, fiction, is the only way to make sense of it all. The show is great for fans of short speculative fiction, historical novels, podcasts that go behind the news, and narrative shows like Radiolab and The Moth. The Chronicles of Now is imaginative storytelling at its most compelling. Authors helping us understand our world. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Brought to you by Pushkin Industries. We're back with more Questlove. Wait, I hate to jack your podcast. I have one more fan question to ask him. Please. No, no. Do you, this is what we want you to do. <laughs> I, I don't think you you don't get enough accolades for going back to Cali. But what I specifically want to know is the scratching on going back to Cali is probably the loudest example of scratching. Mm-hmm loud as in could skip your record if your needle is weak loud yes why you know i don't know if you remember or not remember it was so long ago whatever but what was the logic behind that just it was such good. a game changer for not a major single for or a fan favorite of ll's but it was such a major production the the boom of the 808 and the loudness of the scratching was yeah. unusual what made you do that it was just a, it was just trying to push the limits of what was exciting about the music's like how can we make the 808 bigger how can we you know the, the, and the scratching was also like almost i never really thought about this before but it does, it does sort of relate to voodoo and how it's kind of sounds almost slowed down you know like um yeah 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 and that like more that's more speaking to my inability as a dj than necessarily a, a real choice you know <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I've I've always loved it. But I mean, the engineers, did house engineers ever try to talk you out of things? Like I've done a All lot of things where it's like, no, you can't do that, and yes. you, you upset the system, and the record will skip. And yes, from from the very first, from my punk rock band recording, I can remember everything that I wanted to do. The studio telling me you can't do that. And we did it anywhere, anyway, and it sounded really good to us, even though, <laughs> you know, it was a mess. Right. Okay. It was really, again, it's not about, for, for me, it's never been about doing it right. It's always about, I'm just trying to feel something. I'm playing with it until I feel it. And sometimes it's more interesting when it's not smooth or, I don't know, sometimes it's interesting when it's when something's really wrong, like if a vocal's really too loud, can be interesting sometimes. In the case of the D'Angelo record, I remember thinking, I can't believe that this guy is such a great singer with such a beautiful voice, and the vocals are so understated and quiet, almost like it was an afterthought, and it was right. brilliant. It was like, it was, it was the opposite of what you'd expect from mm-hmm. the greatest soul singer of his day. It just went the other way. 
Right. Wow. Is it my yeah. question for two of you is when you're doing these records that in retrospect become iconic, when do you realize they're iconic? I read a a pitchfork perfect ten review of uh voodoo of which they they dissected it and analyzed it and painted it in such a different light that I didn't realize that, oh, oh God, this album's about to get like a, a, a second round of accolades because suddenly like the hipster community is discovering it. And then, you know, all of a sudden, cats from Animal Collective, cats from uh, Dirty Projectors and then, like all these, they're coming up to me like, yo, man, Voodoo came out when I was 11 and da 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 And I hit up D like, yo, dude, white hipster Brooklyn bands really like Voodoo. This is crazy. And the thing was, it was like when we were first done and I had my copy of it, like before the world had it, my assistant at the time was like, this sounds horrible. I, I was at a restaurant and I was like, yo, I got the new D'Angelo. And they, they gave it back to me by like song two. Ah, man, it, it was just like, I was so scared of, because I felt like, oh man, I'm the co-pilot and I ruined a, a marquee star of another label. Like they're really going to kill me for this. So I didn't feel that the first go round. And it really wasn't until 10 years later once the reissue came out and once I started hearing other people's views of it that I realized like, oh, okay, maybe we, we did make art. Like he still refuses to believe, not that he, he's just mind blown, but you know, he's not on the internet every day and that sort of thing. So he still doesn't have an inkling of a clue that he created a masterwork. He still doesn't know. He'll be mind blown that, I'm going to tell him, like, yo, I talked to Rick Rubin. He really loves voodoo. Get out of here, man. He didn't say that. Like, that's that's going to be his reaction. Not, so. not like, really <laughs> loves it. Like, in the greatest of all time. Like, it's it's a short list, and it's right there. Hey, you're preaching to the choir, man. Yeah. Did you think that way the very first time you heard it, or did it take Absolutely. you something? Absolutely. It just took me by surprise. I can't say I wasn't a fan of the album before that. I just didn't really listen to the album before that. This album caught me right from the beginning and it just right away, it didn't sound like anything else. So the same thing that alienated the people who didn't like it was what drew me to it. It's that I'm listening to something I don't have a point of reference for. And that's really exciting. And I look for those experiences. And it wow, was a man. great... It was a great version of it too. It's not, it wasn't weird for the sake of being weird. It wasn't different to show, oh, we could do something different. It was different because it was cool as fuck to be different. Do you, do you remember, Mir, when you're talking about the process of putting that album together and you said you were bringing back bits and pieces from your travels and wanderings and things? Mm -hmm. Do you remember some examples of those? Um, back then it was again i was youtube the first time i went to japan i spent all my money in sort of the the, the video district and so i came back i went to japan with one kipling bag of my clothes 
I came home from Japan with four Kipling bags, and three of them were all VHS cassettes. I mean, that's the first time I saw Soul Train in 20 years. So when we were studying all the Al Green performances on Soul Train and on a Midnight Special, we noticed that Al Green always had a trick. The trick was, you know, he'd always tell his band, he gave a signal, which instantly brought the band down to a whisper. And we thought that was the most exciting part of, that's the exciting part of the, that's when the women start screaming or whatever. So we were just taking bits and pieces of like, okay, so when we do this record in concert, and you do, then we're all going to take it down to a whisper. So we were just taking notes from any and everything that we saw. Band dynamics with Al Green, band cues from Prince, who's notorious for this means that, and the back means that, and the hip means that, and that sort of thing. Every James Brown clip. I mean, I, I came back with over 50 hours of, and then at some point it just became like, Electric Lady just became the hangout spot to watch these things. So suddenly, like, other artists are coming in and watching and watching and watching with us and watching with us. And, of course, like, Virgin's like, what do you mean they're not in the studio? Huh? They're doing what? They're still in the break room watching TV? Like, that sort of thing. But we had to refuel ourselves. So we get there four in the afternoon. We wouldn't start a note until maybe 11 o'clock at night. Because we had to fuel up and watch these performances over and over and over again and talk about it and then go in there and recreate it and then morph it into what we feel, into our thing. And this went on for years. Went on for five years. Between 96 and 98, a, a core of the music was done. And then, I mean, he's very meticulous with the vocal process. So all of late 97, 98, 99 was just all vocals. We never thought this album would be finished. I mean, this follow-up record took 15 years. So that should give you <laughs> that should give you perspective. Rick, have you had a moment in your similar period in your career where there was that level of intensity and absorption with one artist? Well, more like what he's saying, there have been times where an album's taking a long period of time, and during that process, we work on a lot of other things, and that goes back to like that first Beastie Boys album and Run DMC's Raising Hell and LL Cool J. Those things were all happening, often overlapping. And and it's happened many times since then where, you know, I'd be doing pre-production on a Chili Peppers album while finishing a Tom Petty album w- would be really normal to be happening. When we come back, Questlove breaks down the production on Michael Jackson's Off the Wall. After this break, stay tuned. We're back with more of our conversation from Questlove. The way you're describing this process is so profoundly different from the the life of a writer that I have to ask these questions. Mm -hmm. Is it not extraordinarily stressful and anxiety-producing to have a project stretch on and on and on for that length of time? And I'm, I'm assuming you're getting an angry phone call every two days from the studio. Is this not true? Um... Someone has to pay for all of this. During that period, budgets just were limitless, at least for my particular situation. The clients that I used just, they knew what they were getting. I mean, we just got lucky that these albums went platinum or whatever, but these were like art records. For what was commercial at the time, we were the opposite of that. 
no one ever, I mean, of course, the good folks at Virgin Records would have loved for Voodoo to come out in 97, 98 or whatever. But I mean, it came out in the time that it was supposed to. I, I've never had that. I mean, you were a label as well. So did you ever have those, you know, okay, I got to put my, my cap on and, and be the label CEO? And- never. No, my, I always thought that my job in the label was knowing that the music was the most important thing. And as long as we're working on making the best thing we can make, there's no better uh, gift you can give to a label than an album that's Mm going to be meaningful. And whether that's a year later, we don't have a chance to redo these things. So it's like when we feel like we're making something forever, a statement forever, you really want to get it to at least the best that you can in that moment in time. You know, you may listen back to your work from 20 years ago and think, oh, I would do that differently today. doesn't mean better or worse, but just the work is a little bit like a diary in that it's a reflection of where you are in that moment. And that's the best of your taste in that moment. I mean, for me, it's, I say like, it's done when I get goosebumps and when each song gives me goosebumps and it matches my, I'll do like a a vision board, if you will, inside of my notebook pad. So usually when I start a record, I start off with a blank slate and there's 12 spots my mind, I'm thinking, okay, side one is four songs and side two is five songs and side three is four songs and side four is four songs. And as we're creating this stuff, I'm kind of going back to that songs in the key of life event, listening, living room moment, that war of the worlds, looking at the stereo moment as each song is created. And I start placing like, okay, I would put this third song on side two. I would put this so whenever I create stuff, I, I guess I'm in the mind state of us listening to songs in the key of life, analyzing the order of the songs and those things. And once I place or have places for those blank spots and that's done, then I feel like, okay, the mixes have to give you goosebumps and whatnot. And then I feel like, okay, we've reached satisfaction and this is it. Is songs in the key of life, by the way, an album. Do you feel about that album the way Rick feels about Voodoo? Is it is it beyond reproach for you? You know what? Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson are the two artists in whom whenever I'm asked to do these like your top ten albums of all time, whatever, I consider them more events. Like it's like thrilling off the wall will never wind up on the top ten all time list that I ever compiled because I don't I borderline think of thriller as a a social experiment more than I do great collection of nine depressing songs. You know what I mean? But you know what's interesting? Michael Jackson's off the wall. And I think I have an idea of how Quincy Jones operates as a producer. Because what I'm noticing is, first of all, each song has somewhere between a minimum of 40 tracks, sometimes to 68. So it's almost like three tape machines. But what I notice is that for each song, my guess is that Quincy used what I'll say is a rope-a-dope approach with Michael, which was, okay, give me all your ideas. Give me all the ideas you got. Give me all the ideas you got. Literally every song on Off the Wall, which we sort of note as an instant classic, is one minuscule step away from becoming like the worst dated disco album of all time. 
because literally on each song, there's like, okay, we'll do the disco conga, you know, track of the day. On like work a day and night. That would have killed the song. You hear like, oh, oh, like disco calls. You hear way too many verses. You hear like weird synth. Uh, oh God, burn this disco out. The last song that closes the, there's like some weird fired effects and and synthesizer patches not needed. So basically it's, I figured he let everything out, every idea out. And then Michael trusted him enough to pull Rick Rubin, which has reduced it. All right, we don't need this. We don't need this. We don't need this. It's weird because on Rock With You, Benjamin, uh, I forget Benjamin's uh, last name, the string arranger, there's lush, lush strings on Rock With You. In my mind, like, oh, some Barry White shit. They should have rolled with that. But he took it away. And now I see why, you know, in hindsight, it would have distracted from the song because the strings were so beautiful on Rock With You that it would have taken away from the song. I would have been paying attention to the strings and left the song alone. So that's what I mean about like being a smart producer. Like I, I wouldn't have had that knowledge. There's nine takes of she's out of my life of which the version we all know is the least crying he would have, he did like by take six through eight. I'm like, why is Bruce Sweetian letting the tape? I I'm hearing Quincy, like console Michael. He's like, I'm sorry. I keep messing with the song and everything. And I would have been like, yo, I would have milked it for everything. I would have chose like take six where he's really crying his eyes out and I would have ruined it. But he knew exactly what to take away from it to make it perfect. And that's the type of discipline that I wish to get to one day. Yeah. One day I'll learn. (laughs) (laughs) One day I'll learn. That's part one of mine and Rick's conversation with Questlove. Part two is in your feed now. Listen as he gets behind a kit to break down his drumming for us and tells us maybe the greatest Barack Obama story ever. Seriously. You can listen to the songs featured and discussed in this episode at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Broken Record is produced by Justin Richmond and Jason Gambrell with help from Mia Lobel, Jacob Smith, Julia Barton, Jacob Weisberg, and of course... Rick Rubin and Bruce Hammond. Our Broken Record theme song is by the great Kenny Beats. This show is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. I'm Malcolm Gladwell.